The Brooklyn Basketball Podcast, the Brooklyn Nets with a record of 19 and eight. And yet, I don't know, man, I don't feel that good. Am I crazy, Biseglia, that I don't feel that enthused about our 19 and eight start? No, you're you're a Nets fan that knows that the ultimate prize <laughs> is about what's going to happen in May, June. And like I said, at the end of June with the new schedule. No, I, it's, it's normal to feel that way. It's uh, they're good, but they're you know, they're, it took. 24 second half minutes of Durant to beat the Pistons. I don't care if Harden's not playing. That's you know, Detroit stinks. So yeah, there's a little hollow feeling there and there's another player not here. That's good. So yeah, I get it. That I, You know, that's the thing. Like Kevin Durant had an incredible performance against the Detroit Pistons and we should celebrate his greatness. We should. I mean, an all time great player is on our basketball team and we are getting to watch him operate on a nightly basis. But I think the thing that I don't want to say bothers me because they won and the Nets mostly win their basketball games was the thing you pointed out. He had to play 24 minutes in this game. This was such a perfect night to rest James Harden, just like it was in theory, a perfect night to rest Kevin Durant against the Rockets and rest Kevin Durant against the Orlando Magic when he was dealing with that shoulder issue. You take one of your stars out against an opponent that you figure you'll be able to beat anyway. And you look at those three games that they've played without one of the two superstars, one game they lost, which was a few days ago against the Rockets. And then the other two games against the magic and the Pistons, who you could argue are the worst teams in the league. They've struggled to close a team out. And I don't know if it's just strictly, Hey, they're, they're, they're people playing with their food, essentially where, they're not taking the first 36 minutes of a game seriously. I can't say it's as simple as that. I do think that's a factor. So while Kevin Durant was amazing and 51 points is the most scored by any player in a game this year, only the second guy to score 50 in a game this year, and he was utterly brilliant, 41 minutes he had to play. And we had to, I know they ended up blowing him out, but we basically had to sweat 40 of the 48 minutes. That's less than ideal. Yeah, down five, go to the fourth quarter, and then just open up that game. It's a 14-1 run or whatever it was in the fourth quarter, and they put it on cruise control. Uh, I, I will say, to play a little bit of a devil's advocate, and I made the point to begin with, but that's the that's the part about having superstars that makes it different in the NBA is that you have that luxury and that, yeah, their supporting cast is nice and good. At the end of it, it's all about whatever, whatever Kevin Durant can do, and that's the difference, and that's where those games – you get wins that maybe you wouldn't win if you don't have a superstar and well, you see the value of James Harden, not there. So yeah, yes. Like I know. And I, 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 I'm just saying it because it's like, Oh, you know, if you didn't have Kevin Durant, you guys wouldn't even have won this game. Well, yeah, that's, that's why they paid him $40 million a year is so they can do things like this. Well, if they didn't have Kevin Durant, they'd be a lottery team. Essentially. I mean, crazy. It's, it's, it's unfortunate how this all happened, but right now the supporting cast around Kevin Durant, is not very good. And look, we could start with the fact that James Harden's had a terrible year and he's underachieved. But I think what concerns me going forward, despite a marvelous win-loss record of 19-8, and eight, and it can only get better or it could only get better with the homestand coming up and even the West Coast trip doesn't sound maybe as brutal as it would have been at the beginning of the season. Like, they've got a chance to rack up more victories. Toronto, Philly, Orlando, Denver, Washington. Not that they're going to sweep all those games, but... You can win three out of those five, four to those five. And even the West Coast trip of Portland, the Lakers and the Clippers, like 
they may continue to rack up victories, which is awesome, but you can see clearly the deficiencies of this team. Number one, where's the three-point shooting? Now, I get Joe Harris being out as a big blow. Obviously, he's the best three-point shooter in the league. But outside of Patty Mills, outside of him, and he is night and day based on the game. I mean, there are certain Mm -hmm. nights in which he can't hit the backside of the barn, but they don't hit the three consistently. You know, DeAndre Bembry's been okay in the limited shots he's taken, but LaMarcus Aldridge is not a three-point shooter, even though, again, he's done a decent job. Bruce Brown is not a three-point shooter. James Johnson hasn't been great. Javon Carter hasn't been great. We'll see about Cam Thomas, who's been a nice story over the last few weeks. Even David Duke, who got some more minutes today. We should call him David Duke Jr. It's just, it's better. It's more appropriate than just calling him David Duke, but whatever. They don't hit threes. And it affects James Harden because the spacing on the floor isn't ideal. So when James is getting to the basket, there's three guys waiting for him because there's less of a three-point threat all over this roster. And like that's not Joe Harris being back helps, obviously. But the makeup of this roster, it's a little concerning, don't you think? Well, I think I I would say Joe Harris being out is a huge deal. And I think it it when he's gone, it then even it, it, it emphasizes even more just how deficient they are in shooting the three. But he is so good at it and he has made such a difference in helping the spacing that I don't think we could just and I don't think you did this, but like minimize like, oh, it's, it's just Joe. We still have other guys around him. He's such a major force in what they do on the three point line and for their spacing. You, They clearly miss him there. But I agree. There's there's a need for them to get another shooter to help spread the floor for this team once they make a move going forward towards the playoffs, because it's just not enough. Like last year, Jeff Green wasn't a three-point shooter per se, but he was a guy that could really help them spread the floor. And if he was open, you felt good that he could make a three-point shot. Landry Shamit, I think we would all agree that Cam Thomas is an upgrade as a player on the offensive side and overall skill set and what he can do moving forward. But, you know, Landry Shamit would help you space the floor and he could shoot the three. So those two guys are gone. Carter has been abysmal shooting the basketball. Cam Thomas is starting to get in a flow, but he's less of a space provider and more of an offensive threat. I like what James Johnson has done, but yeah, he's not the guy that spaces the floor and hits threes. Millsap's been awful from deep. Blake has been terrible. Yeah, they need to find another three-point shooter. Joe back will make a major difference. A major difference. Oh, no, no. I, they, absolutely. They need another three-point shooter. They, they they do. I think in a deadline deal, uh, what's his name? I was loving from the Rockets, Matthews. I was like, he's the guy I want on this team right now. Can shoot three, energy. They need somebody like that on this roster moving forward, no doubt. Well, it's going to be interesting also to find out what Cam Thomas is from three. I can't look at his numbers and just throw him away because remember, I think he missed his first eight or nine threes, wasn't playing consistently. He is clearly in this rotation now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. Cam Thomas is a 25 minute a night kind of guy. And I don't know if he can be a reliable, you know, 38 percent from three corner three shooter where you can benefit when your teammates of James Harden and Kevin Durant. But Cam Thomas is going to get shot. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The the weird thing about Patty Mills, and I know he's shooting over 40% from three, is he's so damn streaky. I mean, it's not like Patty Mills goes four for nine on a nightly basis. You know what I mean? Three for eight on a nightly basis, where he's consistently around what he's shooting for the year. Patty Mills, like opening night, 
will either go seven for seven, seven for 10 from three, or one for nine from three. And when you do the math, hey, the percentages are pretty good, but dude, it is so all or nothing with him. And then the obvious thing about Patty is he's not, you know, a t- an ideal point guard. And unfortunately, with Irving out and on a night like the game against the Pistons where you choose to sit James Harden, which is a wise choice, he's not an ideal point guard. You know, and so that forces you to play Javon Carter, who's been abysmal. And you're basically playing without a point guard. That's why when the Pistons were making their run in this game, whatever that run turned out to be, it was like a 14-1 run when the Nets had a chance to blow them out early. They were up by 11. You even texted me, hey, give the Pistons credit. They're hanging in this game. But during that run, a lot of it was buoyed by net turnovers. And how many times was it James Johnson taking the ball up the court and then sloppily turning the ball over? I don't want to kill James Johnson. He's actually been a good net. But you're asking him to basically run the offense. And I think he gets exposed that when James Harden isn't out there and on a night like the Piston game, he wasn't out there for any minutes. You don't have a real point guard on this roster. I think that's what they truly need uh, before the trade deadline. Yeah, no, it was a another ball handler would be great. I mean, clearly seeing that and James Harden is going to be in big spots, so that won't be as much of a glaring need, a glaring hole, but yeah, Patty Mills bringing up the ball, not as his ideal spot for that. He likes to come off screens, shoot shots, and you saw James Johnson with those turnovers, man. It was like two or three in a row, and it was like you put your head down, you look back up, and there's a turnover at, at the half court, and I agree with you. I, you can't put it all on him because he's not a natural point guard. I don't even think that's a, a, you know, obviously, but he can bring up the ball a little bit, and Coach Nash was just at that point just trying to figure anything out. I do want to reference back to Cam Thomas and how well he has played. And tonight, to me, this was like, I thought this was his best performance as a net because he was so damn good in the fourth quarter when they needed him. If it was getting to the basket in transition, pulling up from mid-range jumpers, uh, he was just, to me, in the fourth quarter, scoring nine of his 11 points was so eye-opening. And that lineup that Coach Nash went with, with Clax, I mean, they were young with Claxton, and Thomas, I mean, they, young guys in crunch moments here for the Nets, as you look for some positives moving forward when other guys do come back, as you feel good, Cam Thomas getting run in these bigger spots, helping this team out. And I thought he was fantastic. Today. He was. And yeah, I usually don't make a big deal out of plus minus. I think it could be overrated, but sometimes it jumps out at you and you have to recognize it. In this game against the Pistons, Cam Thomas was, are you ready for this? In 29 minutes of game action, he was a plus 27, mm. which is just insane. He's got he's got a lot of confidence, and yes. you have to respect that, especially when you're sharing the floor with Kevin Durant and then a lot of nights James Harden. So he's been given an opportunity. That was the positive I took out of the Houston game, even though it was the one loss on this road trip. David Duke Jr. got an opportunity. And I don't think he's ever going to really, truly break this rotation when this team is healthy, but he played well. And I think the experience of playing helps, God forbid, you actually need him in a big spot. And certainly Cam Thomas, I think, can maintain a spot in this rotation, especially because he gives them offense. Like they've got a lot of guys on this team that will defend and they're valuable on the floor and they give you energy. Bruce Brown being one of them, DeAndre Bembry being another. But no one is going to confuse DeAndre Bembry or Bruce Brown as an offensive player. And that's why I think Steve Nash has done a pretty good job of making sure both of those guys are not on the floor at the same time. Like, there's no need. They're redundant. And you lose way too much offensively. Like, 
I appreciate that Bembry's actually pretty good around the basket and Bruce Brown is improving from three. He's still not very good, but you could tell he's working on it. You can't have both of those guys on the floor at the same time because then you have, don't have enough offense. And by the way, this whole discussion is so crazy from nine months ago. This strength of the Brooklyn Nets is their defense. We've it seen it in the fourth quarter of, the, of all these games on this road trip. They shut teams down and that's their identity. And when you look at the roster, there are more guys that I would circle and say, that's a defensive player that I would say they're only there for their offense. And in the regular season last year, how good were they offensively? There was the games where they score 140 points, 148 points. These monster offensive nights. We saw that Atlanta one night, the Washington game one night where they were just could not miss shots and scoring the whole deal. But the defense was putrid. And then the playoffs, the defense got good. I'm so, and this is the part that's frustrating because there's only time will tell and we can't just, you know, magically make it May. But I just can't wait to see if this roster that's not as good offensively, but is more constructed for a playoff deep series wins because they are so in tune defensively. And you saw it and it's the Pistons. But in the fourth quarter where they tried, I mean, they got after it defensively. They blocked shots. They got loose balls. They got transition baskets. I mean, that it was so nice to see defense turn into easy offense. Bruce Brown dunk, Cam Thomas layup. There was a Patty Mills layup. So much easy offense from that defense, something that they could not get in the playoffs last year. Is that something they can get in the playoffs this year? I don't know, but we'll find out. And, and by the way, look, we, we all understand the Pistons are terrible. They're probably the worst team pound for pound in the NBA, especially with Jeremy Grant being out for an extended period of time. But when we talk about what this team has done defensively in the fourth quarter on this road trip, let's mention the two other teams they did it against. The Dallas Mavericks, who feature Luka Doncic, who everyone is in love with, and the Atlanta Hawks. I mean, it's not as if these fourth quarter exhibitions, these master classes they've put on during this trip have been squarely against Orlando, Detroit, and Oklahoma City. I mean, they did it against the Atlanta Hawks. And look, with some of that on Atlanta, like did Trey Young miss a couple of bunnies in the fourth quarter of that game? Absolutely. No doubt. I mean, sometimes you're going to need some luck on your side, but a lot of it is they're playing well defensively. They're locking in defensively late in the game. It's it's crazy to say because we could spend, you know, most of this podcast bashing James Harden and being concerned about James Harden. I got to tell you, how many games has he played as a net now? I don't even know what the total number is, but we've watched him for a good amount of time. And the reputation that James Harden had as a defensive player was as a lazy, unwilling defender. You know, we would always see the highlights of James Harden not giving a crap. He's played 62 games in the regular season as a Brooklyn net. I don't think he's a bad defensive player. I've seen more times, usually late in games when they have to lock in more times where James Harden is engaged as a defender than not. So it's, it's weird because we can kill Harden, especially this year for his production and certainly be concerned that, you know, he's past his prime or what is he going to look like if he signs a super max extension but do you agree with me that, like, defensively, he's not nearly as bad as we probably all thought he was? The one that's glaring out to me that does get on my nerves is the game versus the Bulls where he didn't rotate out and Lonzo Ball had a wide-open three. And even if he wasn't going to get out there anyway to contest a shot and get The 48 play, too, against the Knicks, yeah. I mean, th th those you, happen, no you doubt. You see him. You see him. Yeah. But the thing about him yeah. that defensively, I think, 
I did not realize is on the ball, he's not, I don't think he's very good and he can get beat easily into the paint. But if you put him in a spot in the post, he is so strong. That's where his defense, I think, shines a little bit better is he can he can contain other play, little bit bigger players in the post well. And that's where I've been surprised by his defense is you get a small forward or a power forward in the paint. He's not going to just allow that guy to beat him up and get to the rim. He's pretty sturdy there. It's some of those first steps where guys are getting by him that's been annoying. But I don't think it's a, it's not as atrocious as the perception is out well there. that's it's not i mean i think yeah i agree with that he's he definitely has some flaws on the perimeter he's better on the inside in the paint than i than i anticipated but it's not this atrocious joke defense that's no no national no, perception I'm, I'm not suggesting you know he's all defensive first team or anything like that i think he's just a lot better yeah. than maybe the reputation that he has I forget Agreed. which moment which player but when he begs steve nash for the challenge on the swat that the broadcast crew didn't think was going to be overturned and it was turned out to be a huge, huge defensive play oh, and a yeah. trust by Steve Nash that James Harden as a star player was legitimately asking for a valid challenge as opposed to just bitching about a call. Yeah, I don't know. Now, now this is going to drive me absolutely insane. Just think the Dallas that, game, wasn't it? Wasn't it, it in the it, Dallas game? Yes, it was. It was the game because there was two net fans. This I remember that were yes. behind. Yes. And they yes. made a reaction yes. like, you could tell that the Nets got the call based on their reaction, not even hearing the ref get to it. So I think you're right. I think it was Dallas. I think that yes. sounds right. Yes. This this was a, a weirdly fun trip. They went three and one. The one loss is against the Rockets, which absolutely sucked. Obviously, Durant didn't play in that game. James Harden was offensively not what the Nets needed him to be if they were going to win that game. But think about the Atlanta game, which was probably pound for pound the most fun game on this trip, Agreed. even more so than the Dallas game. Agreed. That one sequence, and I know you tweeted the video out, even though you did a terrible job not tweeting out the yes version, because I thought Ian Eagle had a moment when he compared uh, <laughs> when he compared TLC to Charles Smith because yes. he had two yes. opportunities on yes. the putback. Yes. That just cracked me up. But that was Kevin Durant. At its finest, mm -hmm. he gets the block in transition. He loses his balance, comes back into the play, tips out after Atlanta was looking for, I think, their third or fourth offensive rebound. Nets go in trans transition, and then he hits a jump shot, a mid-range jump shot. I mean, it was three marvelous things by Kevin Durant in a 20-second sequence as they closed out Atlanta. We have to learn to trust these guys to close out because I'll give them this. You know, even in the losses, like when they've lost to these good teams that we bemoan, unfortunately, usually the games aren't that close late. No, unfortunately, when they've played close games this year, even though a lot of the times it's been against inferior opponents, I totally acknowledge that they close teams out. I mean, we saw it on this trip. They come back all the time. They're down 17. No big deal. They're down 11, 13. No big deal. Uh, they're incredible at coming back. And obviously it helps to have Kevin Durant. They certainly know how to close. Yeah, the only game where against a good opponent where they did not close and it was competitive and it wasn't the Warriors or the Suns, it was the Bulls the second time. Yeah, that yeah. was the game where they had their opportunities and they could not close it out and they could not get it get the win. I like this, and I contradict myself a little bit here. I don't want to be a hypocrite, but I I I do like Durant when he starts these fourth quarters because I think 
that's when the other team brings in their bench. They bring in their other guys. And with the Pistons second unit, it's not, you know, it's not that they're right home about. And that that first couple of minutes when Durant is out there gives them such a spark where it just snowballs through. And that adjustment, I love that by Nash. Now, I thought when Durant got the fifth foul and they were up seven with like six minutes left, seven minutes left, I thought Coach Nash was going to give him like a two to three minute breather there with the five fouls. Obviously, he has faith in Durant that he, you know, can play smart defensively, lag off a little bit. I, but I do like those first couple of minutes when Durant's out there because if other team doesn't have their best players in, and here he is, and he just keeps going. And all of a sudden, a five-point deficit, and that's turned into a nine-point lead. It was remarkable. It, it turned out to be huge. The problem is because he plays in the entire first quarter and the entire third quarter, if you have him start fourth quarters, you're looking at 40-minute nights. I mean, yeah. you just are. That's what the math is leading you towards. So unless he makes an adjustment where he tries to steal a few bench minutes from Durant in the first quarter and the third quarter, it's tough to play him the entire fourth quarter like he did in the Piston game. And I understand why he felt the need to. They go in the fourth quarter down five. If he gives Kevin Durant five minutes off, even against an inferior opponent without James Harden, they could be down 12. They may go back to Kevin Durant at the eight-minute mark down 12 or 13. So I get why he kept him in the game. It's like the line Nash had a week ago, two weeks ago, when he said, I could play him less minutes, but we'd lose a lot more. And, and he's right. I mean, a game like the Piston game could have turned into a loss. So I, I think the adjustment I'd like to see him make, and he's not, he's not going to make this adjustment, is to try to steal more minutes of Kevin Durant sitting in the first half of games and even a little bit in the third quarter, depending on the way the game's going. They find themselves in deficits most of the time anyway. Why not, with three minutes to go in the first quarter, get a couple of cheap minutes where KD sits on the bench, even if it means both Durant and Harden are sitting on the bench, just to try to save some of the bullets for the second half so that when you do have a night where you want to play Kevin Durant 24 minutes in the second half, like he essentially did in the Piston game, you're sort of able to do it. That'd be the only thing I do. But right now, Steve Nash is coaching when these guys play, and Durant's played every game but two, Harden's played every game but one. When they play, he plays it as if it's a playoff game. Hence why yeah. they end up playing 40 minutes a night sometimes. And that leads me to my question to you. What kind of minutes is, are, is he going to get in the playoffs if this is the regular season versus the Pistons? Remember well, game I, seven? I mean, Remember I mean, game they, seven? He played every I mean, minute. Are they going to do that for hopefully the Nets go on a long run? Is it going to be, you know, Nets Cavs game three? Cleveland stole, you know, like what's good? Cleveland stole a game in, in Brooklyn. Nets are back in Cleveland. That's, is Durant playing 48? That's why. They have to steal as many of these rest days as humanly possible. I mean, I, I get that Durant wants to play all the time, and that's great, and we're spoiled watching him. But can Kevin Durant play 75 games at a 36-minute-a-night clip, and then the postseason comes around, and you're going to play him 45 minutes a night? So I think they're going to be smart. I like how they've strategized when to give these guys rest nights. They've picked the crappy opponents, and yeah. rightfully so. I think what drove us nuts last year is when they're playing a back-to-back -back and they're playing the Philadelphia 76ers, and it's a huge game for the number one seed, and all of a sudden, Kevin Durant's not playing. Like, they almost made it out as if they didn't give a crap who the That's opponent was when they made those decisions last year. Now, we've only had three games to, to, to look at here where they've decided to sit Durant and decide to sit James Harden. And look at... The nights it's been versus Orlando at Houston 
at Detroit. So clearly they're picking their spots. And like I mentioned earlier, it's not like they've blown those teams out. They're two and one in those games. And all of them have been very, very close. But I think they're just going to have to find more of those. And then hopefully this team will start to click kind of like the Boston game from a few weeks ago, where you can have a 31 minute night from Kevin Durant. You know, that would be nice. I think you're going to want to mix those things in because you really don't ideally want to go into the postseason with Durant playing an insane amount of minutes. I think the Nets learned a lesson last year, and I think they now they also realize they have a very different team this year than, than they did last year uh, based on, you know, having three superstars and not two. But I do think the Nets are valuing clearly the way they're playing minutes and they're playing guys. They're valuing the one seed this year early on. It feels like way more than they did last season where they're just going, all right, we got Kyrie, we got Harden, we got Durant. These are basketball geniuses. I understand they only played eight games in the season, regular season. Once we get these guys out there on the court, nobody can beat us. So finding that blend going this year as let's get the one seed because we don't need to deal with Milwaukee till the third round. And we need to make sure that when we get to that spot, knock on wood, we are the home court team. Now, I know the Nets had the home court versus Milwaukee, but if they were the one seed, they would have been seeing Atlanta in the second round right. and not the Bucks, which we don't need to go through. It, it does appear they've got they've they don't have Kyrie anymore. So they understand it's a little bit different when they get to the playoffs. And they're saying, let's let's get this one seed because Milwaukee's well, a pain in the ass. You, you know what the other thing is? I was thinking about this the other day, too. So last year, they never really rested James Harden in fairness. So James Harden was never really a part of this whole rest thing. When James Harden was acquired, he basically went out and played every single game, and then he got hurt. I mean, that's what happened. He had, he had a legitimate hamstring issue, as we saw, uh, and he missed a lot of time. But there was only one game I could recall where they decided to rest James Harden. Only one. And in terms of how many minutes he played, James Harden actually averaged more minutes per game last year with the Nets than he has this year. So... The facts lay out. They haven't really done anything differently with James Harden. Kyrie Irving is not here. He's irrelevant. And last year, they never rested. I think they rested Kyrie Irving a few times earlier in the season. But then he missed a lot of time. He was away for his personal reasons. Kevin Durant is the wild card. And we have to remind ourselves, the main reason why Kevin Durant played fewer minutes last year, he only averaged about 33 minutes per night, and why Kevin Durant rested on essentially every back-to-back was because he was coming off an Achilles injury. Now Kevin Durant is not coming off an Achilles injury. That was multiple years ago now. It's two and a half years since Kevin Durant. It's amazing to think about, but it's two and a half years since Kevin Durant had that injury. So last year was different, and we we should never have expected, and I'm not necessarily saying we did. I have to listen back to our podcast to see what the hell we said. It was... We should never have expected, though, the Nets to handle Durant the same way as they did last year, because last year was a season that was smushed together, number one, and B, he was coming off an Achilles. So I think we're all finding out together now how they're going to handle Kevin Durant, because it's completely different than a year ago when you think about it. And Durant last year had the hamstring injury also, where just when the Nets were about to get the big three together, right, he right. went out and then he was hurt. So that plays into it as well, how they're managing minutes because he's coming off 
you know, obviously the, the big injury, but now he's got a hamstring thing that they don't want to linger. So you add that to the mix as well with it. And yeah, you're right. Now we're seeing more of what this new version of the Kevin Durant is. And it is amazing to think about how damn good he's been. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard people say the Nets will get Durant, but he'll be 80%, 90%. And if you get that, you're still getting a great NBA kind all-time NBA player, but you're not, you're not getting Kevin Durant. He's gotten better. I don't know. How, I, I didn't, I didn't watch every minute of him in golden state or every minute of him in Oklahoma city, but he is somehow getting better at 33 years old to off this injury. And uh, you, you, you do have to say every moment, like when he's going out there, I, every time he misses, it surprises me. I, I surprises me every single time he misses a shot and just so thankful that we do have to have these kind of conversations about his minutes and his playing, et cetera, and not what the alternative could be. It, it is crazy. I mean, he it's, it's 59 games. He's now played as a net in a regular season. So it's a much smaller sample size than all the years he had in Oklahoma city and the years in golden state, the, you know, three, four years in golden state. What was it? It was only there for three years. That's amazing to think about. So next year, Kevin Durant, will be with Brooklyn as long as he was with Golden State. Then again, he's already been here as long because he was here for a year in which he didn't yeah. play. But whatever. Uh, he has been as efficient as ever. Defensively, he's ridiculous. I, I don't think you can appreciate a player until you watch them every day on the defensive side of things. But yeah, I mean, we're watching Kevin Durant as the best player on the planet. You know, whether it's him or Steph Curry, that's fine. People can debate it all day. Who cares? We have one of the guys that's in that discussion. Now, let's get to James Harden, because the one misnomer that's got to go out the window right now is the whole not getting to the free throw line thing, because over the last few weeks, it's evened out. All right. He's had plenty of games where he's gotten on the line 15 times, 12 times, 19 times. And so his average free throw attempt is now back to where it was a year ago and the year before that. So James Harden. Free throw wise, let's put that away. He is simply, I mean, I think it's very, very simple. He's not finishing at the basket. I have seen this guy, specifically the Chicago game, the second one, the one in Brooklyn a few weeks ago. And I give him credit. He acknowledged it. He said, this loss is on me. No crap. Of course, the loss was on you. James Harden must have missed five or six bunnies at the basket. He was getting to the rim whenever he wanted. That wasn't the issue. Even if it looks like it's happening in slow motion, James Harden's ability to get to the basket is still there. James Harden's ability to get to the free throw line is still there. James Harden's ability to hit a step back three after he dribbles 15 times, it's um, it's pretty much still there. Like he his numbers from three are down this year, but it feels like every three he hits comes off of the dribble, dribble, step back three. It's when James Harden gets a pass and happens to be wide open where he feels the need to dribble a couple of Every times time. and then chuck it up. Crazy. It's it's unbelievable. But his biggest issue, and I, look, I haven't crunched the numbers to tell you definitively, but the difference between the guy who's a 45, 46% for, uh, shooter from the field and a guy who's shooting 40% from the field comes down to he's not finishing at the basket. He has missed way too many shots in the paint this year. And I think that's the difference between James Harden today and the James Harden throughout his career. Am I crazy? I do think he's missing more three point shots. It definitely feels like he's not making as many big threes as he did in the past. I will. I, I also think 
I, like to me, the only three pointers I can remember him making is a four point play. He's always fouled on every time he's fouled on the perimeter, then he makes the three point shot. But yeah, his that Bulls game was rough and that was tough to see. And then the problem is that where it may, like it manifests and gets worse is when he's going out and has some just awful turnovers at half court, some really bad turnovers that lead to some easy points and buckets for the other squad. And that's where it starts to just get painful. But he showed up in Atlanta. He showed up in Dallas. He was brilliant in those two games. So you could, it feels Evan like a corner is being turned a little bit where I think he's coming out of this and going to the other side where he's going to become and get back to the brilliance. That was the reason we gave up 72 draft picks and two of our younger core players to get him. And what was so amazing last year, it feels like that corner is being turned. It's just finish around the basket. Don't have all those silly turnovers. Can I, can I ask you this too? Does it feel like every time James Harden brings up the ball up the court, he gets it across the timeline at 17 seconds? <laughs> yes. Every single time it's like, it's going to be an eight second violation. I'm, I'm watching it every, every game. It drives me crazy, but it's, it's, it's getting better. It's, it's not there yet. But it's definitely better than what well, how about towards the end of the Houston game when he's letting the ball bounce? Oh, that was brutal to use the clock or use save the clock, save the clock. And then all oh. of a sudden your boy, I think it was uh, your guy. What's his name? The guy you want Matthews. the next to trade yeah. for Hutchinson, who dives onto the ground and takes it away from him. And then James fouls. And that was just a, that was an effing mess. They, I think the other problem is, and this is a part of why I don't trust him. You know, guy, guys have to earn your trust. I think you and I and most net fans trust Kevin Durant. You know, even during that series loss to Milwaukee, look what he did. He was the reason they were in that series. He was the guy who had that epic performance in game five and even game seven, specifically at the end of regulation. I don't trust James Harden. And I didn't blame him last year for his struggles in game seven because obviously he was hurt. Uh, he was a hero for even coming back and playing a hero in the sense of sports heroes. But this year, his worst games have all come against good opponents. Mm -hmm. Like his worst games were the game again, was the game against the Chicago Bulls, the two games against the Chicago Bulls. His worst game, the game against the Phoenix Suns. His worst game, the game against the Miami Heat earlier this year. His worst game, to a lesser degree, the Golden State game. And so it seems the better the opponent, the more James Harden struggles. And that's a terrible, terrible sign for the opponents that he's going to have to beat in April, May, and June. And I think that's a, another reason why, I mean, I do have some concern, you know, it's December. Now we are a quarter of the way through the season and, you know, we're looking for small things. Like you mentioned the Atlanta game and said, Oh, maybe he's turning the corner. I mean, was he really vintage James Harden that game? He wasn't. I don't think he made any shots from outside of the threes that he took. And so once I see James finishing at the basket on a more consistent basis and we get to see a couple of vintage Harden games where he drops 40, it's tough to really believe that it's all turning around and he's back. Maybe this will be the one season where because James Harden's had brutal playoffs. It's been well documented when he was in Houston, everything that happened, especially in those Warriors games. Maybe this is the year where James Harden is just brutal in the regular season, never looks great, can't finish around the rim, misses three-point shots, and then gets in the playoffs and rewrites the narrative. 
and has a completely brilliant series. It has Jeez. been it has it has been frustrating. I love it your optimism. <laughs> I, I'm trying, Evan. I'm trying because it you get to this place, you get to this point, and this is it. And we've gone through this. This is it. This is the moment for the Nets. They are in the window. They are in they are in it. And games like tonight, it feels good to beat the Pistons, and we want to get the one seed. And I don't want to, I don't want to belittle that because I think it's really important for this team to get the one seed. But ultimately, it's about what they do later on in the season. And I just, I just, I want to see the best from the beard. I want to see him become the brilliant player. I want to see the guy that can put up 40 on any given night, gets to the free throw line 14 times, and is a pain in the ass, and everybody hates his guts. And I go, I don't care. He's mine. He's on my team. I want to get there so badly that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm searching, Evan. I really am. So when well, I say he turned a corner, I really hope I'm right. The, the Of course, the, the cold, hard reality in the middle of December right now is with no sign of Kyrie Irving coming back and James Harden playing like the 30th best player in the league as opposed to the third best player in the league, despite a 19-8 and eight record, this doesn't feel like a championship team. And I know that's the weirdest thing to say, but it's true. And that's okay because it's still mid-December. Like I, I acknowledge that Kyrie Irving in a stunning turn of events could come back and play for this team, or the Nets could trade Kyrie Irving and get a package back that improves this roster. Or I acknowledge that James Harden can become the James Harden. We remember there are a lot of things that can happen that can change the reality of the moment. And the moment is, despite 19 and 8, it just feels like something is missing. Though, I will say this positively. We got a glimpse of the Nicholas Claxton we've been waiting on in that Atlanta game. A little bit of the Dallas game, too, with his defense on Luka. Nash deploying him only in the second half of the Atlanta game was fascinating. But I'll tell you this, bro, and tell me if you agree with me. Once his conditioning is back, where they feel, hey, he can go out and play 30 minutes on a nightly basis, assuming his performance on the court dictates that. I would start him, and I'd have LaMarcus coming off the bench because LaMarcus Aldridge is instant offense. He's a crafty veteran. He's the captain of the mid-range jump shot. And I kind of like that spark off the bench because when you start a game and you have Nicholas Claxton who can defend anybody, and you've got Durant, and you've got Harden, and you've got Mills, you've got offense. So I'm not saying it should happen Tuesday against the Raptors, because I get it. The conditioning of Nicholas Claxton is still a work in progress. But once you feel comfortable with him, I insert him back in the starting lineup, and I have LMA coming off the bench to give this bench unit a little bit of an offensive spark. Here's where I would love it is when Joe Harris comes back and then you make the the Spurs connection come off your bench with Mills and Aldridge that I like, I I'm still not there yet to get Claxton as the starter. I like the pick and roll work that we've seen with, with um, Durant and Mills at the top of the key where they get LaMarcus Aldridge, that mid range jumper, wherever the hell he wants it. But if defense is going to win your championships and Claxton has the ability to, to switch onto guys like a Trey Young, like a Luka, he's going to earn the minutes deep, even if you lose that offense from him because he's not existent offensively, although he did hit two free throws today, which was nice. Yes. He's going to be the closer there defensively. I, I'm not quite there with you, but I think in a dream scenario, if you could get that going, 
that would be awesome to see. And I and I do love Aldridge and Mills off the bench together. I, I do like that connection. But yeah, it's been it's been nice to see uh, Nick Claxton running up and down the court, defending. He had a couple of nice block shots today versus Detroit. Uh, he he's getting better, and like so much expectations were put on him so fast that we kind of blew it out of proportion of you know who he is or what kind of player he could be, as opposed to just seeing like, hey, for us and this team, defend, box out, rebound, block some shots, and guard the perimeter when you're forced to. The, the two aspects of his offensive game that just need to be solid, and it really isn't asking much, is number one, you hit on it, hit your free throws. He got off to a terrible start. Not that he's had that many opportunities from the line. Hit a couple in this Piston game, which is a nice sign. So number one, do not be a liability where you can't play this guy late because he ends up at the free throw line, you end up with an empty possession. And then the second thing, and this is probably the most important is if him and James Harden can put together that chemistry, James Harden can finally have a lob partner on this team because he needs one. And they don't have a lot of bouncy athletic guys that James Harden is used to playing with. Uh, If Jared Allen was still here, if Jared Allen wasn't a part of the James Harden trade, my God, those two guys would be best friends. I mean, they would be BFF. So the best thing that they have, because Blake can't jump anymore, Lamarckich is more of a crafty guy, though he can finish around the basket. Nicholas Claxton needs to become his law partner. And the more chemistry that they develop, the better weapon that can be. Because that's one aspect of Harden's game that just hasn't been fully unlocked here this year because he doesn't have anybody to Clint Capella with him. So yeah, that, that's a big part of Claxton's game. And if him and Harden can develop that chemistry, think about all the easy buckets you can get just from that. In the first game of the season, the Nets played the Bucks, and Harden tried to get it to Claxton on yes, those lobs constantly. a million times, and it didn't work <laughs> out. And I bring that up because I I need I, I was glad they were gone for a while because I just couldn't take losing to them every freaking time. I want to see the Bucks again because I want to I want to see what this new Nets team that now we're in a rhythm with and we kind of have an idea of what they are at this current state. I want to see them play the Bucks to get an idea of where they are. Because it to me, I, I the Bulls have beaten the Nets twice. I it's it's the Bucks, and I and, and I, everybody knows it. Unless the Sixers can figure something out with with Simmons, right now it's the Bucks. I have to. I, I just I'm dying to see what this Nets team looks like against them because those three guys together don't lose in Milwaukee. Yeah, look, they're they're the team to beat. Let's call it like it is. I don't care what any betting line says. The Milwaukee Bucks are the team to beat in the Eastern Conference. January 7th in Brooklyn, February 26th in Milwaukee. Those are the two games they have against the Milwaukee Bucks. And they got one more late in the year uh, in late March. So they've got three games with Milwaukee. It, it It's funny. It doesn't mean anything, but it means something. That's the way I would look at it. All these games against elite opponents, they don't really mean anything in terms of what happens in May because, like, I, I know this is different, but I'll never get out of my head. The Brooklyn Nets swept the Miami Heat when LeBron, Bosch, and Wade were on that team during the regular season in 2014. And then they played in the postseason, and the Nets were no match for them and lost in five. So head-to-head regular season just doesn't mean all that much, but it means a lot for us 
and our mental health and just, hey, see, we can beat the Bucks. See, he, we can beat Phoenix and Phoenix. So all these challenges against elite opponents. And it's funny. Who counts as an elite opponent? The Bucks, the Suns, the Warriors. And who else is on that list? Now that the Nets have lost twice to Chicago, they only have one more game with them. Sure, yes. we'll include the Bulls. The Miami Heat, they count. And Nets lost them earlier this season. Like, there isn't a really long list of teams that we would say qualify as those elite teams. But for our own mental health, for all of our mental health as Net fans, you'll want to see them beat good opponents. Yeah, it would. Uh, it'll happen. They'll they'll have to. I mean, well, I guess it doesn't. Maybe they won't. <laughs> maybe they'll go. Maybe the Nets will go sixty and twenty two and have just twenty two brutal losses. Imagine that. Well, what Has do you that think happened before? Where a team. Do the Nets have any losses versus under 500 teams? I, I, I'd have to look at it back. But are the oh, well, the Rockets, duh, that just happened. But it's like, could they go a whole year without losing to, to a uh, under 500 opponent? I mean, there was the Rockets, but it feels like it. So what do they do on this five-game homestand? They have Toronto, Philadelphia, Orlando, Denver. The Denver game is a back-to-back. And then Washington. So it's... You know, a couple of games you look at and say are cook. Well, really, the only game that's a cookie is the Magic game. The Raptors are a pain in the ass. The Sixers are feisty. The Nuggets are going to be very tough on a back-to-back. I know the Wizards have cooled off, but they're not bad. Beal's had a terrible season. What are you thinking? Four to five? Is that a reasonable goal here? I think four and one is the record. Yeah, that's that's what jumped in my head right away. Four and one. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But, hey, here's the bottom line, Net fans. They're 19 and eight. So despite any negative thing I said, any negative thing you're thinking about, any negative thing Biseglia said, 19 and 8, just keep winning basketball games and we'll figure it out. I mean, at some point, the Kyrie Irving thing is going to have to come to a head. Either he's back, either the Nets trade him, like something's got to happen with the Irving stuff. And it's going to be interesting because in just a couple of days on December 15th, everybody's eligible to be traded and you know, anybody who signed as a free agent is going to be eligible to be traded. So I, I'm not saying there's going to be a flurry of moves, but maybe the Kyrie Irving market will start to come into focus because it, it, it's tough to say, would you trade him or not trade him? Not knowing what the return is. I mean, if the return is Kristaps Porzingis and Jalen Brunson, the answer is no, obviously. But as somebody DM'd me on Twitter a few days ago, I'll say this one out loud. Would you trade, Ky- what was it again? Kyle Lowry. Who was the, Ow. oh, Kyle Lowry, PJ Tucker, and a future one for Kyrie Irving. <laughs> I think you do. I, I, I don't think, I think you have to make that trade. Yeah, I would make that trade. And I, the weird part about these deals is Kyrie is not, has not played. So you instantly make the other team extremely, extremely better. Like Bam, Kai, and Butler. That's a nice that's a nice group right there that could be, you know, they could beat the Nets, I guess. But then but you but but the Nets are dealing somebody that doesn't play. So then you add Lowry and then P.J. Tucker is not guarding Kevin Durant in the playoffs. So that's a win right there. (laughs) We'll have a lot of time to figure it out. You could listen uh, to Biseglia on the Bad Weather Fans podcast. Boy, your buddy, your Nick fan buddy must be depressed because they suck. I mean, hey. They're horrific, bro. Does he accept that? Well, to be fair, actually, last night was at his wedding. So I think his mind was in other places. Oh, good. Well, congrats to him. Yes. But yeah, the team has been, the Knicks have been, have been, they've been bad. I mean, today was tough without, you know, their two best players in Toppin and and, uh, Barrett. But yeah, just, just, they've been bad. Breaks your heart. 
It really does. Just feel you feel terrible. For you were from guys. Milwaukee or New York today. <laughs> the, here's my douche answer because it's so true. My douchey answer. The Knicks never gave me an opportunity to root for them because they got their asses kicked from beginning to end. You know, there was no moment like in the fourth quarter. I was like, come on, let's go. Let's go, Julius. You know, yeah, they got their ass kicked. So never really had that opportunity, but maybe we'll get one later on in the season. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Brooklyn basketball podcast. You can follow uh, the great Mike Biseglia at Mike Delivers Pod. And obviously me and Craig Monday through Friday at two o'clock on the fan. Thanks for listening, Brooklyn.